Bienvenue et bienvenue. Hello and welcome to City Breaks Paris, episode 22, the very last episode in the Paris series. I'm going to end by looking at a small sample of the huge array of fiction which has been set in Paris over the centuries. I'm going to look at four different authors and two sets of short story collections and between them cover all the eras you can think of, lots of areas of Paris, all sorts of different styles of writing many different themes and topics and hopefully provide some inspiration if you fancy reading a novel or a short story set in Paris. So let's kick off with one of the very best known French authors of all, Gustave Flaubert, who was actually Normandy born and bred and who retired for the second half of his life back to Normandy but who knew Paris very well having been a student there at the Faculty of Law although in fact he gave up law fairly early on to devote himself to literature best known for his two huge novels, Madame Bovary and L'Education Sentimentale, A Sentimental Education in English, and also for the way he worked, the slow, careful way he worked, his absolute precision in vocabulary. His novels may have been very long, but he spent ages and ages on single sentences. He's known, for example, to have said that he didn't think there was any such thing as a synonym, and that what a writer should be doing is tracking down what he called Le seul mot juste, the only right word, to convey precisely what he was trying to say at that moment. I'm not going to focus on Madame Bovary today, because although that's probably his best-known novel, it's set in Normandy, whereas his other well-known novel, The Sentimental Education, is set largely in Paris. It's the tale of Frédéric Moreau, at the beginning of the book A Young Student, and his infatuation, total lifelong infatuation, with an older married lady, Madame Arnoux. The main plot strand is, then, his relationship with her, the ongoing tension about whether it's ever going to lead anywhere, and the various other affairs he conducts with other ladies through the book. But it's also very much a picture of the age. Flaubert had said, I want to write the moral history of the men of my generation. And it is, then, very much set in its time, in the middle of the 19th century. And from it, you can learn huge amounts about the social setting and the political setting of those years, including, in fact, the Revolution of 1848 and the transition to a republic which followed after that. You see lots of different areas of Paris. You see them through the eyes of different sorts of people, the ordinary, the well-off, the aristocrat. And so, just to give a flavour of that, there are two shortish extracts. In the first one, Frédéric, in his student days, is still in Paris during the holidays. He's wandering about the Latin Quarter with not much to do and we are treated then to some of the things that he sees which give a real picture of the ordinary people who lived in the back streets of the left bank area and were there even when all the students had gone home. Quote, All sorts of peaceful sounds could be heard. The fluttering of wings in bird cages, the whirring of a lathe, a cobbler's hammer and the old clothesmen in the middle of the street looked hopefully but in vain at every window. At the back of deserted cafes, women behind the bars yawned between their untouched bottles. The newspapers lay unopened on the reading room tables. In the laundresses' workshops, the washing quivered in the warm draughts. Every now and then, Frederic stopped at a bookseller's stall. An omnibus, coming down the street and grazing the pavement, made him turn around, and when he reached the Luxembourg, he retraced his steps. A hundred and fifty or so pages later, Frédéric, a little older, a little wiser, 
and in the company of a mistress, one Rosanette, is taking a carriage ride around Paris. It's a Sunday, people are out and about in their finest clothes. Rosanette, for example, is described as follows. Quote, her hat of pearly straw was trimmed with black lace. The hood of her burnous fluttered in the breeze, and she sheltered from the sun under a parasol of lilac satin, rising to a point in the middle, like a pagoda. They drive through Place de la Concorde, along various quays, past the Trocadero, and stop just near the École Militaire, where horse racing is to take place. And here's a description, then, of the people that Flaubert describes as the racing set. This is what they were wearing. Quote, it was the period of trouser straps, velvet collars and white gloves. The women wore brightly coloured dresses with long waists and, sitting on the tiered seats in the stands, they looked like great banks of flowers flecked with black here and there by the dark clothes of the men. So very much a contrast to the first extract then. Better off people at leisure and out to enjoy a sunny Sunday afternoon. A lot of showing off your finery perhaps a little bit of a flutter on the horses. Part three of the novel opens with Frederick realising that something's happening. He can hear noises in the street, he goes down to have a look, and it turns out, in fact, that what he's witnessing is the beginning of the 1848 revolution. He sees that paving stones have been torn up, the railings of the church have been pulled down, the beginnings of a barricade, a few broken bottles, some coils of wire, the object being to obstruct the cavalry who are coming this way. Here then, a few lines of description of this scene. Quote, All the bells were ringing in the churches. Lead was melted down. Cartridges rolled. On the boulevard, the trees, public urinals, benches, railings and gas lamps were all pulled down or overturned. By the morning, Paris was covered with barricades. Resistance did not last long. Everywhere the National Guard intervened, so that by eight o'clock, by force or consent, the people had taken possession of five barracks, nearly all the town halls and the strongest strategic positions. Quietly and rapidly, the monarchy was disintegrating all by itself. A dozen pages follow of description of some of the events conveying the struggles that took place. Quote, National guards, all with black faces, dishevelled and haggard. They'd just taken the square and had executed several men. Their anger was still unappeased. Shortly after that, there's a description of the Panthéon, which had been turned into a mortuary, described in a moment of lull after a hard night of fighting. Quote, the Place du Panthéon was full of soldiers lying on straw. Dawn was breaking. The campfires were going out. So very much a detailed, blow-by-blow account of what was going on. Sentimental education, then, offers you the story of one young man's growing up, it offers a description of society at that time and also a window into that moment of history in 1848. Secondly then, I'd like to feature one novel by Émile Zola, who was one of the other very prolific authors in the second half of the 19th century. A massive series of 20 novels about Paris society under Napoleon III and after the Franco-Prussian War. And I'm going to pick just one, a novel called Thérèse Raquin, published in 1867. Thérèse Raquin being the name of, I hesitate to call her the heroine, the main character anyway. It's the story of her early life as an orphan who's adopted by her aunt. The aunt marries her off to her own son, so her cousin Camille, who's quite a sickly individual, doesn't bode very well, 
and trouble begins really when a family friend, Laurent, a much more robust version of a man, arrives and Therese is very smitten with him. It paints a picture of working-class people in Paris, their gloomy surroundings, their struggle to make anything of their lives. It opens, for example, with this rather gloomy description of the Passage du Pont Neuf, which is a little street where the shop, run by Therese's aunt, is situated. And Zola describes it as follows, quote, A sort of narrow, gloomy corridor running from the Rue Mazarine to the Rue de Seine, 30 paces long and no more than two wide. This passageway is paved with yellowish flagstones, loose and worn, constantly oozing an acrid damp. The glazed roof that shields it, peaked at a right angle, is black with grime. On fine summer days, with a torpid sun scorching the streets, a whitish brightness falls from the soiled panes and lingers miserably in the passage. On nasty winter days, on foggy mornings, the panes of glass cast nothing but darkness on the sticky flagstones, a vile, sullied darkness. As soon as you hear that, you know it's not going to be a cheerful story, don't you? And lots of little details keep reminding you what a hard life most of the people in these grim, grubby little streets are leading. Here, for example, is Zola on a typical scene you might see if you just looked out of a window. He writes about, quote, street girls from the Latin Quarter playing for a moment, their pale faces battered by a brutal fondling. And then he goes on to describe the people watching them. Quote, students smoking white clay pipes watched them twirl round and hurled smutty jokes at them. It's not long before a passionate affair begins between Therese and Laurent, the family friend. But that's sordid right from the beginning, and it's no surprise when halfway through the novel it leads to the two of them conspiring to murder Camille, to get rid of him so that the two of them can carry on their life together, unencumbered by him. Straight after the murder scene, writes Zola, quote, the shop in the Passage du Pont Neuf stayed shut for three days. When it opened again, it seemed damper and darker. The window display, yellowed by dust, seemed to be in mourning for the household. Everything drooped forlornly behind the filthy glass. Beyond the linen caps, hanging from the rusty rods, Therese's face had a duller, more cadaverous pallor, motionless with sinister calm. And then the tension really ratchets up made worse by the fact that the family receive weekly visits from a policeman calling socially to play dominoes, but a constant reminder of what they've done and evoking a constant fear about where it was going to lead. As Zola puts it, Camille's corpse slept between them. So the second half of the novel is really all about guilt and fear. Quote, Therese and Laurent writhed in the agony of their union. They caused each other pain. Then hate slowly rose in them, and they ended up glaring at one another in rage, brimming with veiled threats. He goes on to describe how their rows often ended in blows, and how frightened they were of where things were going to end. Quote, Simultaneously, they saw the policeman, the prison, the trial court, the guillotine, all of it suddenly and clearly. OK, let's leave the 19th century and fast forward to our times and enjoy a recent novel that proved very popular with the French reading public called The Elegance of the Hedgehog by Muriel Barberi. It's set in an exclusive apartment block at 7 Rue de la Grenelle, and it's a book which has two narrators who take it in turns to tell their stories. 
The first is the widowed concierge, René Michel, who lives quietly in the caretaker's apartment on the ground floor, largely ignored by all the rich people who own the apartments on the upper floors of the building. The second narrator is the 12-year-old Paloma Jossi, daughter of one of the families, a very precocious 12-year-old who despairs of her family and pretty much of everybody else who lives in the building, and who lends attention to the plot by announcing that on her next birthday, when she'll be 13, she's intending to kill herself. So, to give a flavour of these two narrators, here, for example, is the concierge, René, describing a top food critic who owns one of the flats in the building, Pierre Artance. He is, she says, a wordy wordsmith, blindly wasting his talent. He can write entire pages of dazzling prose about a tomato. And here's René again on one of the other residents in the apartment block, Solange Jossi. She's got an envelope to deliver to them, so she goes up and knocks on the door. And this means that Solange, who, like all the other residents, doesn't take too much notice of the concierge, is going to have to have some sort of interaction with her. And this is how René describes how that goes. Quote, You will recall that as far as the residents are concerned, I am a stubborn concierge who lurks somewhere at the blurry edges of their ethereal vision. Solange Jossi is no exception to this rule, but because she is the wife of a socialist member of parliament, she nevertheless makes an effort. Good morning, she says as she opens the door and takes the envelope by hand to her. An effort, as I said. Her descriptions give you an insight into the upper echelons of Parisian society and what some of these people might actually be like. Here she is then on one Sabine Pellier, whom she describes as, quote, the wife of a bigwig in the arms industry. Sabine Pellier is the wife of a cretin in a conifer green duffel coat, who, once he has his requisite diplomas and has obtained his political science degree, will in all likelihood go on to disseminate the mediocrity of his paltry ideas in a right-wing ministerial cabinet. Part of the fun of reading all of this is knowing that none of these people have any idea that this rather dowdy little concierge, to whom they hardly give a thought, has all these radical ideas about them, and really quite a lot of insight into what they're actually like. The second narrator, Paloma, is equally cynical. Here she is, for example, on the married couple, Monsieur and Madame de Brolier, also residents of the apartment block. Monsieur de Brolier, the state councillor, she says, is, quote, so conservative that he won't say hello to divorced people. And Madame de Brolier is summed up in a few well-chosen phrases, quote, posh suit, string of pearls, pinched lips, and loads of grandchildren called Grégoire or Marie. In addition to this vast array of characters who are so carefully described, you get little insights into French culture as well. So here, for example, is Paloma, the 12-year-old, on French restaurant cooking. Quote, if you want my opinion, French cuisine is pitiful. So much genius and wherewithal, and so many resources for such a heavy end result. And so many sauces and stuffings and pastries, enough to make you burst. It's in such bad taste. And when it isn't heavy, it's as fussy as can be. You're dying of hunger, and before you are three stylized radishes and two scallops in a seaweed gelée served on pseudo-Zen plates by waiters who look as joyful as undertakers. But it's about a lot more than a series of carefully drawn character sketches. There's a plot, which really gets going 
when one of the families has to sell up and a new person arrives in the apartment block, something unheard of for decades. Various things ensue, which mean that the two narrators get to know each other much better, and what seem like two separate strands at the beginning come together by the end. It's very funny. I hope I've already given a taste of some of the philosophising and the very French way of looking at things. And really, if you want to do whatever the French equivalent of twitching the neck curtains would be, you want to have a look inside an exclusive Parisian apartment block and find out who's there and what they're like and how they get on with each other, then I really can't recommend a better book than The Elegance of the Hedgehog. And if you're wondering, as surely everyone is, why it's called that, it comes from a paragraph halfway through the book when Paloma, the younger narrator, is describing Madame Michel, or René as we know her better, the concierge. Unlike all the other inhabitants of the apartment block, Paloma has shown an interest actually in getting to know Madame Michel, and as she does so, she finds her really very interesting, and her description of her ends like this. She has, quote, The elegance of the hedgehog. On the outside, she's covered in quills, a real fortress. But my gut feeling is that, on the inside, she has the same simple refinement as the hedgehog, a deceptively indolent little creature, fiercely solitary and terribly elegant. And as a fourth novel, I've chosen a book called Murder on the Ile Saint-Louis by Cara Black. Quite, quite different from the other three. It's a detective novel featuring the same detective, Émile Le Duc, who's starred in lots of other Cara Black's novels which take place in other areas of Paris. It's got a very complex plot, which obviously I wouldn't give away because that would spoil things, but actually I might find quite difficult to summarise without going back and making notes. Suffice to say that it starts with Émile Le Duc finding a newborn baby, apparently abandoned, in the courtyard of the block where she lives on the Ile Saint-Louis, and along come other various strands, a young woman who's been murdered, an environmental group passionate about their demonstrations, Emmy's own work as a computer specialist, her sidekick, her dog, Miles Davis, etc, etc, all woven together in a sort of race-along plot that certainly carries you with it. But it's very much set on the Ile Saint-Louis, and so if you know that area of Paris or indeed would like to get to know it, that's an extra strand to enjoying the book. Here, for example, are the opening lines. Aimé le Duc scents the scent of spring in the air, rising from the Seine and spilling through her open balcony doors. A church bell chimed outside. Leaves fluttered in the breeze and couples ducked into a nearby brasserie. It was a beautiful night on the Ile Saint-Louis in the heart of Paris. Emma ran her chipped gigabyte green fingernails over the laptop keyboard. There are references throughout to little areas on the Ile Saint-Louis, the Pont de Sully, for example, the Bouquiniste, the Bertillon ice cream store, which, as an aside, she reminds us has, quote, more than 40 flavours of ice cream. There's a scene in the Church Saint-Louis-en-Ile, with an aside reminding us about some of the historical context of that building. Racine was baptised here. A well-known Belle Epoque serial killer had started his early life as a choir boy in this very church. And there were references too, which turn out to relate to the plot, to things like plaques on various buildings on the Ile Saint-Louis, remembering the fate of Jewish residents there in World War II, particularly to the 112 Jews who were deported from there to the concentration camp Auschwitz-Birkenau. 
and dotted throughout the text little bits of description that make you remember where you are on the Ile Saint-Louis in Paris. Quote, Myriad dots of light were reflected in the gelatinous waters of the Seine from the Hôtel Lambert's tall windows, which were illuminated by glittering candles. There are a number of well-known authors quoted on the back of the book jacket, making it clear that this is firstly a great detective novel and secondly very much rooted in the area in which it's set. Alan Forst, for example, writes of the, quote, fine characters, good suspense, but best of all, it's transcendentally, seductively, irresistibly French. And there's praise too from Val McDermott, who says, quote, If you've always wanted to visit Paris, skip the airfare and read Cara Black instead. And actually, if you get hooked, you'll be pleased to know that there's a whole series of these Hermé Le Duc books, with titles like Murder in, Various Places in Paris, The Marais, The Bastille, The Latin Quarter, Saint-Germain, Montmartre, Passy, Pigalle, you won't run out. OK, let's move on to a couple of short story collections. First of all, one called Paris Stories, which is in the Everyman Pocket Classics series. All sorts of stories are in there, from five different centuries, many by French authors translated, and some by writers who originally wrote in English. You can visit Renaissance Paris with Rabelais, or Jazz Age Paris with Scott Fitzgerald, Colette will take you to the Paris of the Belle Epoque, and there are more recent stories too, such as one about a North African immigrant by Michel Tournier, and a story by Patrick Modiano, who of course won a Nobel Prize for Literature. There's a story, for example, written in 1880 by J.K. Wissement about the Folie Bergère. It opens with the hustle and bustle going on before a show, programme sellers calling out people shuffling in the orchestra pit, the hubbub from the gathering crowd. And just to give a flavour, here's the beginning of a description, he writes, of the dancers at the Folie Bergère. Quote, They are outrageous and they are magnificent as they march two by two round the semicircular floor of the auditorium, powdered and painted, eyes drowned in a smudge of pale blue, lips ringed in startling red, their breasts thrust out over laced corsets, exuding waves of aponopax which they disperse by fanning, and which mingles with the strong aroma of their underarms and the subtle scent of a flower expiring on their bust. You watch, entranced, as this gaggle of whores passes rhythmically by, against a dull red backdrop, broken only by windows, like wooden merry-go-round horses that twirl in slow motion to the sound of an organ around a bit of scarlet curtain embellished with mirrors and lamps. You watch their thighs churn under dresses, the bottoms of which are edged by white petticoats that flounce like eddies of foam under the hem of the material. In a story called Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin, written in 1956, you can go on a visit to the market area of Leal as it was before it was all torn down and replaced with glass and concrete. Quote, Leeks, onions, cabbages, oranges, apples, potatoes, cauliflowers stood gleaming in mounds all over, on the sidewalks, in the streets, before great metal sheds. The sheds were blocks long, and within the sheds were piled more fruit, more vegetables, in some sheds fish, in some sheds cheese, in some whole animals lately slaughtered. It scarcely seemed possible that all of this could ever be eaten, but in a few hours it would all be gone, 
and trucks would be arriving from all corners of France and making their way to the great profit of a beehive of middlemen across the city of Paris to feed the roaring multitude. And then as a final example from the Paris stories, here's the opening of a wonderfully humorous story called The Polymyth by Alphonse Allais. It was written in about 1890. This is how it opens. I first set eyes on him in a cafe in the Latin Quarter when he came in and sat down at the table next to me and ordered six cups of coffee. Aha, I thought to myself, this gentleman is about to be joined by five friends if I am not much mistaken. I was much mistaken. As soon as the six cups of steaming mocha had arrived, he drank them all himself, one after the other which is much the best way to do it, as you will know if you've ever tried to drink six cups of coffee simultaneously. When he noticed my air of bafflement, he leant across to enlighten me. It's quite simple, he said. He spoke in a flat, down-at-heel sort of voice, as if he was talking with his shoelaces undone. The fact is, I am another Balzac. I, too, drink far too much coffee. As the story progresses, we meet all kinds of other characters, Charlemagne and Shakespeare and Napoleon, a couple of Louis, the 14th and the 15th. It's really quite mad and very French. And then finally to my sixth choice, which is actually three books in one, a series called Paris Tales, published by Oxford University Press and edited by Helen Constantine. There are three different volumes called, respectively, Paris Tales, Paris Street Tales and Metro Tales. And they've all got 20 or so short stories set in Paris. They take us from the 19th century to the present day. And they've all been written by French authors or French-speaking authors and translated into English. As the jacket promises us, we go, quote, from the artist haunts of Montmartre to the glamorous cafes of Saint-Germain, from the shouts of demonstrators on the Boulmiche to the tranquillity of Parc Monceau, and by way of example, I thought I'd mention a story by Julien Green called In Notre Dame. It takes place on the Thursday of Holy Week in 1940 and is about a visit that the author made to Notre Dame Cathedral in those very frightening days in the early stages of the Second World War. Here's a very short extract. High up in the transept, a mighty tumult raged. The panes in the great rose window on the north side had been removed and in their place was a large piece of sheeting into which the wind plunged with a kind of muffled blast resembling cannon fire. They were the last gales of the winter, and they were shaking the huge grey canvas as if to break it into little pieces. In the howling of the storm, I thought I could hear only the accents of rage and despair, but as I was listening to this mournful, splendid sound, I noticed that the deep peace encircling the small band of worshippers was not in the least disturbed by it. For years after the war, he remembered these four or five people that he'd seen sitting quietly in the cathedral, praying or lost in thought, and how very tranquil they'd seemed in the middle of all that fear and disturbance. To take an example from the second volume, Paris Street Tales, there's a story by Guy de Maupassant, famed, of course, exactly for his short stories, called The Rendezvous, The Meeting. And it starts with this intriguing description. Wearing her hat and coat, one veil covering her face and another in her pocket to place over the first as soon as she was in that sinful cab, she tapped the pointed end of her little boot with a spike on her umbrella and sat in her room, 
unable to make up her mind whether or not to go to this rendezvous. On the second page of the story, the lady does indeed decide to leave her house, and then we get a description of Paris towards the end of May. Quote, that delightful time of the year when spring seems to come in from the countryside and besiege Paris, over the rooftops, invading the houses through their very walls, decking the city with flowers, rejoicing her stone facades, her pavements, and even the cobbles on the streets, flooding the city and making her drunk with sap, as in a greening wood. Then we watch the lady walking along. She'd been intending to take one road, the Rue de Provence, but suddenly, quote, she changed her mind and went down the Rue de la Chaussée d'Antin, not knowing why, but vaguely drawn by a desire to see the trees in the Square de la Trinité. She thought, oh well, let him wait another ten minutes. I hope you're intrigued. Does she go? What happens when she gets there? Who is she? Who's he? And that's just one of 19 stories in that volume. There are 22 more stories in the third volume, which is called Paris Metro Tales. And here, the idea is that each story does link to a particular area and you're actually told which metro station would get you there. There's a story by Colette about a traffic accident which centres around Opéra, for example. And there's another Maupassant tale in that book called Minuet, which takes place in the Luxembourg Gardens. But the story I've picked an example from is one by Émile Zola, entitled Snow. And it opens with the narrator waking up on New Year's Day to find that overnight it snowed in Paris. Zola gives the description, writing on the second page, quote, It was a surprise she was springing on her city dwellers. She was blotting out her imperfections to please them. Her virgin beauty dazzled them with her smile when they awoke. She seemed to be saying to them, I made myself beautiful while you were asleep. I have put on my white gown of hope to wish you a happy new year. The story goes on through the day until the end, the evening, when things look really quite different. Quote, but the city does not wear her beautiful white dress for long. Her wedding gown won't last. In the morning, she decks herself all in lace, her finest gauze and shiniest satin, and often by evening, she has already soiled and torn her finery. A few days later, her white dress is in tatters. A description follows of the Paris with which you might be a bit more familiar if you've been in January or February. Slush and mucky gutters. And it ends with these lines. And Paris is muddier, gloomier, dirtier than before. She was happy to put on her best clothes, but now those clothes are rags and lie around shamefully on the cobbled streets. So then, a whole range of views of Paris from all different eras and by so many different and very varied writers. I hope I've given you some inspiration for something that you could read before or during or after your next visit. Or just anyway, because the writing's crackingly good. Okay, so after 22 episodes, that brings us to the very end of the Paris series. Something which I hope you've enjoyed, from which perhaps you've taken something away to inform your next visit, or perhaps found things to reminisce about and enjoy visits that you've already made all over again. A new City Breaks series is underway, more about that next week. But if you feel a little gloomy at the idea of leaving Paris, then let's end with that lovely quote from Humphrey Bogart, reminding us that it'll always be sitting there, waiting in the wings, ready for one more visit. We'll always have Paris. 
Thank you for listening. Au revoir.